Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Organizations dedicated to the arts and humanities, including public broadcasting, have long been targeted by conservatives who don't want the federal government doling out cash to these groups. Under President Trump and a Republican-led Congress, will this funding truly be axed? Today we ask that question, now that the president has his budget director in place, Mick Mulvaney, he's a former congressman from South Carolina. Now coming up, we're going to talk with a New York Times reporter, also a reporter from the Washington Post, who are going to tell us more about Mulvaney and what his leadership could mean for the nonprofit community. And later, we're also hoping to speak with Connecticut's liaison to the local arts community to respond to claims by the Heritage Foundation that government grants actually hinder creativity. First, there's lots of award shows to watch each year, but the Grammys always hold the promise of seeing great performers live in your living room for free. And we were hoping to have a conversation to start the conversation today with composer Michael Doherty. He's an Iowa native, but he has a Connecticut tie. He's graduated from the Yale School of Music, and he recently won three Grammys. We were set to speak with him at the beginning of the show, um, but we're still waiting on him. So we're going to flip the show a little bit and hoping to speak now to a Washington Post reporter joining us now. That's Peggy. McLone, local arts reporter for the Washington Post. Peggy, are you with us? I am. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to talk with us a little bit earlier than we had planned. Uh, <laughs> no today, live radio, what can we say? But um, today we wanted to speak about this proposal. I think the Hill reported at first that um, under the Trump administration, they're looking to cut funding from the NEA, the National Endowment for the Humanities, even CPB, which helps fund public radio stations around the country. So you're a local arts reporter. Tell us what your reaction is to this news. Not the first time that funding for these organizations has been slow for uh, to be cut. Right, right. This is an old story, actually. Um, it, it, it dates back at least to 1994 uh, with Newt Gingrich um, and his uh, congressional revolution, um, where they tried to eliminate the NEA and the NEH. I mean, this is the rhetoric of small government, anti-elite, um, you know, symbolic. It's, this isn't about money so much as it's about uh, the effort. You mentioned it's not about money. Joining us now by phone also is Alan Rappaport. He's economic policy reporter at the New York Times. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks again for talking with us a little bit earlier than planned. Um, let's talk about when we're when we hear that there's proposals to cut funding to the NEA, to the CPB, to the, the National Endowment for the Humanities. How much money are we talking about? I mean, overall, it represents just about two two point five billion dollars uh, a year total. So. Um, you know, it's a, it's pretty much a drop in the bucket uh, in terms of the overall budget, where I think last year it was, you know, close to about $4 trillion was spent. Uh, so, you know, it is it is quite symbolic. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the bigger programs are Medicare, Social Security, things like that, um, which are really going to be needed to, to make a dent in the, de- in the deficit. Uh, now, um, President Trump's uh, budget director is now in place, uh, Mick Mulvaney. Tell us about him. Uh, he's got a you know a very um, you know serious reputation as being a fiscal hawk, um, and so I mean there was a lot of controversy surrounding uh, you know his appointment to that job, just sort of because 
President Trump has talked, you know, about big spending plans. He wants to increase spending to the military, wants mm -hmm. to do big infrastructure. And, you know, it's potentially there could be some clashes within his cabinet there because, um, you know, the new budget director, uh, Mr. Mulvaney, has you know, been blamed in some circles for orchestrating the government shutdown because mm -hmm. he was so, um, you know, strict on his principles about not raising spending. So more fiscally conservative than what we consider the traditional GOP. Exactly. Or, you know, as, conser as fiscally conservative as they come. So um, I wanted to go back to Peggy McGlone, again, local arts reporter for The Washington Post. You mentioned that, um, you know, this kind of funding for the arts is, is an old story. It's been targeted in the past. Um, tell us about the impact. I mean, you know, we hear often that maybe, you know, there's that there's this um, claim uh, by the Heritage Foundation. We hope to speak to them later in the show. Uh, they think that, you know, this funding, if it's cut, you know, the private sector will, will uh, jump on board and, and help fund uh, this kind of um, um, you know, purpose in communities. Right. But what about middle America? What about rural communities that don't have a lot of wealth? Where is the money going to come from to support the arts? Well, I, that I that I can't answer. I, I do agree with you that um, there. I you know, what's interesting about this is that the 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 start of this, you know, back 20 years ago, was because the NEA was perceived to be um, favoring to a few big cities and to. Um, fund controversial or blasphemous or, a, a, you know, obscene art. Um, and what they haven't done is updated their research to see that the NEA is actually a very different agency than it was back then. Um, and so as a result, the, the money that the, it will hurt the, age, the areas, the state arts councils in New Hampshire, for example, um, the, the programs in, you know, rural and uh, suburban Pennsylvania, um, which aren't going to be able to um, as easily uh, replace this funny this money as say like the Metropolitan Museum of Art or uh, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, mm -hmm. um, so that you know that'll be an, that'll be an issue and they they call it wasteful spending, um, and uh, you know according to the um, Americans for the Arts the every dollar of NEA funding leverages seven to nine dollars of mm -hmm. private money from foundations or corporations or individuals, so you know that's where that's where it will hurt. It's sort of like the, the NEA grant is like a good housekeeping seal of approval that gets other people to come aboard. It's not big money, um, but it's critical money. And so, you know, that, that's, where, that's where the agency has changed. Um, I, I don't know that they also realize that the, the, you know, close to the majority of the money goes to grants, to, in block grants to the states, mm -hmm. um, to support education programs for veterans programs, things that um, are very popular in Congress. This is where we live. I'm I should just, also oh. point out that the, um, sorry, that the, um, <laughs> that the, okay, the, the Smithsonian and the Kennedy Center and the National Gallery of Art um, are directly funded by Congress, and their annual appropriations blow the NEA out of the water. I mean, that's close to a million, a billion dollars a year mm -hmm. versus 148 to the NEA. That's Peggy McGlone. McGlone. She's the local arts reporter for the Washington Post. Alan Rappaport's also on the line, economic policy reporter at the New York Times. Today on Where We Live, we're talking about you know, proposals, again, to cut funding uh, to the arts, federal funding to the arts. And I wanted to turn back to you, Alan Rappaport, you know, with the Trump administration and a Republican-led Congress. You know, how likely is a proposal from the, you know, the, office, the budget office now um, led by um, Mr. Um, now I'm losing his name, but Mr. Mulvaney, Mulvaney. rather. Yes, uh, Mick Mulvaney. Um, how likely is that to happen, that the funding would um, be cut? 
you know, it's a it's a long and arduous process. Uh, I think you know this was just sort of a, an, an opening memo, which will which precedes you know a budget blueprint, which could be put out you know in the next few weeks before a more comprehensive budget from the White House. So it's sort of an opening salvo, and there's a lot that that has to happen. I mean, Congress is going to be chewing over the budget, uh, you know, probably for months, and you know to actually get a lot of these things done, uh, they're going to have to need approval from some Democrats. Um, to go along with this in the, approach, in the appropriations process. So, I mean, I think uh, it's, it's still it's, it's quite unlikely because there there will be a lot of pushback to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in terms of relative, you know, relative to the overall budget, these are small, but they also have, you know, very kind of passionate followers. Um, you know, I spoke to Stephen Moore of the Heritage Foundation, and, you know, he acknowledged that it's going to be difficult to get these programs uh, defunded just because, um, you know, if you, if you spread out the cost of them over the country, you know, it's, it's only like a nickel per person, but they do have, you know, very passionate followers. Passionate, passionate followers on both sides of the aisle, not just a, a Democratic uh, um, ideal. And, and Peggy, um, again, this is not a new uh, target. Tell us what's happening in the arts community, whether it's in D.C., around the country. Now that they're hearing that, you know, this funding could be targeted, how are they um, gathering a grassroots effort to let their uh, congressmen, men and women know that this is not something that they want to see happen? Right. Well, the the um, arts advocacy uh, doesn't ever really sleep because I think they feel they're always sort of uh, in the crosshairs. But they are ramping up um, letter camp letter writing campaigns, and I'm sure there'll be um, you know responses uh, from the stage uh, if if this pol- you know if this policy actually moves from you know a, a sort of opening salvo to actual uh, reality. Um, and and then the then a congressional arts caucus will probably uh, you know get involved next month uh, during uh, arts advocacy day here in D.C. Um, and there was a letter sent by 24 senators last week, I you know la- late last month um, to Trump, you know saying supporting the arts and arts funding. So um, I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of activity. And Alan, uh, again, with uh, Mick Mulvaney now in, uh, leading the Office of Management and Budget, again, the proposed cuts, when will that be finalized? Is that happening next month? The list? Uh, th- there's, there's supposed to be a, a budget coming out. Um, I think it's going to be mid-March mm-hmm. is what they're saying. Uh, the 13th or the 14th is the latest from the, from the White House. Uh, so we'll see, you know, there's going to be some, some back and forth about these specific programs. We'll see if they end up making the cut, so to speak. Um, or, you know, if the president sort of has bigger uh, bigger fish to fry. He said yesterday that, you know, he's seeing a lot of waste in the government, that he was left a big mess by the Obama administration in terms of the budget. So, um, but, you know, he's, he's made a commitment to, uh, to reducing waste. So we'll see if these programs are considered waste by the president. That's Alan Rappaport, economic policy reporter at The New York Times. Also, Peggy McGlone was on the phone with us, local arts reporter at The Washington Post. Uh, Alan and Peggy, again, thank you for joining us for just a short bit. You're Thanks welcome. for having me. Now, if grants from the NEE actually dry up, what does that mean for arts community, especially here in Connecticut? Christina Newman-Scott from Connecticut's DECD will tell us more, and we'll check in with the Heritage Foundation and its claim that cutting federal support of the arts could actually help foster more creativity. What do you think? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about federal support for the arts, especially after a proposal has come out. Again, it's nothing new um, in Washington that um, there are some leaders who think that funding for the NEA, for the CPB, uh, for other uh, organizations that fund um, local arts and humanities across our nation, federal support shouldn't happen for those organizations. And we wanted to talk about that today. Uh, Joining us in studio now is Christina Newman-Scott, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts, also State Historic Preservation officer, known as the Director of Culture at the Department of Economic (laughs) and Community Development, the DECD. Christina, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. (laughs) Say that three times. (laughs) So tell us, um, you've been in the arts world for a long time. Uh, When we hear about uh, possible funding cuts uh, to the NEA, uh, to the NEH, to the CPB, as an artist, how does that, you know, how do you react? Yeah, well, for, you know, yeah, somebody who comes uh, from a practicing artist background and working in government for the last five years um, on arts investment, uh, it's, it's, it's really scary, to be quite frank. Um, you know, the, in Connecticut, the arts here, our nonprofit art sector, is about uh, just shy of a $700 million industry. And we have about uh, 35,000 creative industry businesses here that employ, um, actually 11,000 creative industry businesses that employ around 35,000 people. The Connecticut Office of the Arts reaches around, let's say, 370 organizations annually across all nine regions. The majority of our dollars go to underserved populations. So um, for a state like Connecticut, it would be a devastating blow. So you're saying that the arts are an economic driver, but Absolutely. they also can, it does something for communities to have to be able to to go to a museum or to have a, a um, performers come into a school. That, yeah. that you, that's something that you can't really quantify. Yeah, and there's you know the arts. The wh- what is it that uh, people are remembered? How how do we remember and reflect on our past? It's culture that tells our story, and so. The NEA just did a recent study about uh, arts participation by state, and Connecticut is really great. We're doing well. Over 70% of Connecticut residents attend art-related events, including the movies, and over 50% of our adult population identify as people who perform or create artwork. That's a big deal. That's half of our adult population that say that they identify, and I can promise you probably the other half appreciates all that <laughs> they're doing. So um, I think it's, uh, we are reaching, we, uh, the work that we're doing in the Connecticut Office of the Arts is transparent. It's informed by people that come from the arts, so it is not aligned with any political agenda. We are working with arts experts across our region and nation to help us make these decisions for how best to invest in our communities. And we see the impact and we feel the impact. Walk me again through the process. So the NEA awards, yeah. Support, we get funding yeah. to particular states. So tell us how yeah. much you get. What would happen if that funding was axed? So the NEA gives about 40 percent of their annual allocation uh, to states across the nation. So all 50 states receives funding. The Connecticut Office of the Arts, our most recent, our 2016 allocation was um, around $740,000. It's matched one to one. So our general fund allocation, which we received about $1.4 million, obviously is used to match the NEA funds. And then the majority of those dollars are used for grant making. And so we're looking at, um, you know, it's broken down into educational, right, um, underserved. Uh, they allow us to use some of that for pro- professional development uh, to the field. So uh, if we lose that 740000 dollars that we know how to stretch a dollar in the arts, let me tell you, um, 
uh, many of our organizations, especially our small and mid-sized organizations, will no longer have access to resources that help them. Um, What we're trying to do with our funding is also help them grow, give them the development that will help them learn how to write better grants, um, make them more nationally competitive for national funds. So we don't just want them coming to us. We want to see that our Connecticut organizations and artists are becoming more and more nationally competitive. And the private founder, the private uh, sector cannot take on this responsibility because, as you can imagine, there are different things that drive private sector decisions. I mean, you're talking about the potential of them just focusing on what's most popular or market-driven. And only 5% of private sector funding reaches rural communities where we are reaching them at a, a much larger rate. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, you're hearing Christina Newman-Scott, again, again, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and State Historic Preservation Officer, known as the Director of Culture here in the state of Connecticut. We wanted to hear a different opinion on um, whether a federal support for uh, or agent, uh, nonprofits like the NEA um, should definitely be axed. Joining us now by phone is uh, Romino Bacha. She's Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies and a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., Romina, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So a lot of people have been talking with you lately um, because of uh, your belief that defunding programs like the NEA could actually enhance the arts. Tell us your, your, your rationale there. So first of all, I'd like to put um, NEA and NEH funding into context. There's actually very little federal funding that supports the arts, culture, and humanities. In the big picture, in the, the primary way in which the U.S. government supports the arts is not through direct spending, but rather it's through the tax code with the charitable deduction. And in comparison with how much in private voluntary contributions go to support the arts, culture, and humanities, the federal funding stream makes up a teeny tiny percentage. It's less than 0.01% because NEA and NEH together only provide about 300 million dollars in grants to the arts, whereas uh, private contributions provide $17.3 billion, and that is according to USA Giving's 2015 report. So the federal funding stream is not even a rounding error, but it has an outsized impact because so many organizations use it as a stamp of approval. More more money than gets directed uh, toward those projects that have received federal support And if you think about what kinds of projects will be considered for that, you don't really want to have to appear in front of a congressional uh, committee because you funded a project that a lot of the American public felt alienated from or um, felt was offensive, perhaps to their religious beliefs. And and then you end up having to defend yourself in front of a congressional committee with Mm -hmm. the threat of potential budget cuts. So I, I really worry that the federal funding stream politicizes the arts and makes the arts uh, dependent um, on uh, politics and also uh, puts political interference in a a sector that I think can thrive most by being independent of politics. So you're saying that the arts is politicized because they get funding from the federal government? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And if you're looking through the record, we have had quite a few congressional hearings, especially in the 90s, over certain art pieces. And there was also a really good article in the Washington Post on will Trump make the arts great again and on how these organizations are already shifting the way in which they market themselves in order to appeal to the new administration. So it's very apparent that um, 
there's a lot of politics involved in terms of what art gets funded through the NEA and NEH, and that that truly does interfere with um, how how they might be chosen otherwise. And so I am I am encouraged that the arts are primarily funded by private means, and the federal funding stream is relatively small. But I am uh, also concerned that it has such an outsized impact on where fe- uh, private dollars go because of that stamp of approval that uh, the federal uh, stamp of approval in, in the way in which it's viewed. Christina Newman Scott, how do you respond to Romina's uh, beliefs here? Well, um, to one of your guests' earlier points, um, the NEA of the 90s is not the NEA today. And also, let's just make a point, like it, it, with, with innovation, um, failure is a big part of that. Not every single thing that we all do or fund is going to be liked by everybody, and that's not the point. The point is to be challenging people, pushing people, unearthing things, and, and using arts as a platform to discuss uh, uh, issues that are uncomfortable sometimes. And that's fine. That's good. That's why we live in a democracy. But um, I would say that uh, the private foundations, I mean, if we look at uh, the funding over the last, let's see, there was a report that I saw that uh, in 2011, just 2.1% of the grants awarded by about 1,000 foundations accounted for 46.4% of their total giving to the arts. And as I said earlier, um, you know, a corporate and individual philanthropist, there's these motivations that um, can potentially narrow cultural experiences, whereas the practices that the NEA has in place, and I can testify to this, having helped serve on NEA panels, they are engaging leaders in the arts and cultural community from educational backgrounds, uh, from you know visual performing literary, literary arts across all the disciplines to help them make um, decisions. And our processes are very transparent and um, rigorous criteria is used. So um, I, I disagree with her. And I know the state of Connecticut, we've just come through uh, completing our strategic plan uh, for 2017 to 21. And the fundamental, one of the most important focuses of that plan is called READY, which is relevance, equity, access, diversity, and inclusion. And we're involving our constituents in helping us uh, make decisions about how we make our investments. We're giving them a seat at the table. I'd be happy, though, uh, if Romina has a list of foundations that she believes that would be able to support our underserved communities and our rural communities the way that the NEA has managed to stretch their dollars. I would be very happy to tweet that out, put that on Facebook, blast that out. But I can tell you that in the state of Connecticut, um, it would be a great challenge for us without their support. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about federal support for the arts uh, for public radio stations around uh, the country uh, with, again, a proposal um, out of D.C. to cut funding to the NEA, the NEH, and the CPB. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, as, people, as Connecticut residents who are listening now? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Romina Bacha is in, uh, on the phone with us. She's deputy director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Foundation in Washington, D.C., also Christina Newman-Scott um, from Connecticut, the liaison from the state to the arts community. I want to take a few calls now. Uh, Noelle's calling from Hartford. Noelle, you're on the show. Yes, I'm, I'm struck by a Joni Mitchell song, Doesn't It Always Seem to Go, that we don't realize what we've got till it's gone. We are paving paradise and putting up a parking lot. If we're talking about such a small amount of money, why cut it? It's serving us. 
I have a daughter who is a BFA acting major in college. Theater saved her life, literally. Um, the arts are integral. The arts are important. And they need every, every dollar that they can get. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Noelle, for your call. Ramina, how, how do you respond to Noelle, who says, why, why target this when it's such a, a minuscule amount of money when you look at the, the $4 trillion uh, budget uh, in the federal government? Because it's such a small amount of money, and the reason to target it is not necessarily to bring in budgetary savings, because this is not going to balance the budget. But the point is to allow the arts to be independent of political interference. And if you look at some of the NEA's budget, they send 40% to state arts agencies, and they make sure to distribute that money as widely as possible because they want to be in every district because they want every lawmaker on their side but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're picking the best art they just want to make sure that they have political support so the NEA itself when it distributes its funds does oftentimes so for political reasons and then many of these grants to state arts agencies end up being channeled towards regional economic development initiatives such as the construction or modification of art centers. So there's some art embedded in those projects, but a lot of it is actually due to stimulus and job creation uh, concerns. And, and I think there are better ways of doing stimulus projects uh, rather than diverting art funding for the purpose um, of receiving political support. Mm-hmm. I, I believe the arts are important. They're integral. And the American uh, people support the arts with their private uh, charitable contributions in far, far greater ways than uh, what the federal uh, government does. Plus, as federal funding has been frozen, private contributions have risen by almost 10% just from 2014 to 2015. So the arts are flourishing and they're doing so uh, because of private support. But what happens in the rural communities where there's not a lot of wealth, maybe not a lot of corporations that can support uh, the arts? What happens to them if there's not the federal support, Romina? Well, those are exactly the kinds of communities that would need uh, private support the most. And I, I am confident that an organization, organizations that are currently distributing um, funds to rural areas, um, will continue to do so, and they will be able to use private funds doing so. And I am not a fundraiser for um, the arts, but I, I imagine that this discussion we're having on here today and the fact that there are uh, media reports that the Trump White House may be targeting the NEA and NEH for cuts is already bringing in additional private funds. I mean, that fundraising letter practically writes itself. And what better communities... To, to, to argue for uh, support for the arts for than communities that um, really need those funds because they don't have uh, wealthy uh, individuals living in their areas that donate uh, to, the, to the local theater, but they really do rely on those private contributions. I want to take some more calls, but Christina, do you want to respond? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I disagree. Uh, this uh, our the, our federal funding uh, that we receive as small as it is there's no political motivation and you know quite frankly if what Romina was saying were true we wouldn't be struggling every year year after year to get the kind of small dollars that we receive if we were politically motivated we wouldn't see that the you know the distribution for the NEA was 148 million while in you know 2013 American taxpayers spent 454 million on Guantanamo Bay you know 
it, it, <laughs> we'd be we'd be way better off if it was politically motivated. It's absolutely not. Our office at the Connecticut Office of the Arts funds projects like Judy Dorwin, where she's working with the York Women's Prison and she's helping women reenter society and reconnect with their communities using arts as a tool. Our funding goes to you know Writers Block in New London, working with underserved youth and using spoken word. Our funding goes to veterans projects like at the Quick Center for the Arts with War Stories. Our funding every single day is reaching deep into communities. And, you know, with all due respect, I'm looking at this impact in a mirror. And Romina is looking at it through a telescope. I want to take another call. Andrea is calling from Hartford. Andrea, you're on the show. Yes, hello. Thank you so much. My name is Andrea Luna, and I actually work for the Judy Jordan Performance Project, going into the York Correctional Facility, working directly with the inmates. And I have to just say, from personal experience, five years doing this, I see firsthand the transformation of women when they are allowed to have a voice, explore things that they've never been able to voice in their lifetime. And they are the disenfranchised. They are often the poorest of the poor. And I see other inmates attend these performances where Governor Malloy comes to support us and they see firsthand that they are not forgotten and they actually sign up for next year's performances and it transforms their life. So when they are released from prison, they have a different way of living. They have a different way of approaching and they find ways to voice truth and speak in ways they weren't able to speak before. It's imperative we still have this ability to do this kind of work if we want a society of change. Thank you, Angela, for your comments. I want to take another quick call. Connor from Old Saybrook. Connor, you're on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so my question was more, it's been brought up several times that, uh, that adding this public funding towards the arts is actually making it somehow like more politicized when, I mean, I feel, and I don't know how uh, everyone else feels, but that art in its essence is kind of like making political statements. And I don't really understand how uh, making the differentiation between public funding and saying that if it was strictly just private funding, that there wouldn't be any of that political influence happening whatsoever. Thank you, Connor, for that point. Romina, would you like to respond? Oh, yes, certainly. I, of course, a part, art is a form of speech, and some of that speech is political speech, and a lot of that is also privately funded. My concern is whether the federal government is um, directing funds um, to, say, there was a lot of controversy during the Obama administration that a lot of federal funding was going towards LGBTQ projects, both on the science side, but also on the arts side, and that was something that a lot of Americans had concerns about. They didn't like the direction in which this was well, going. you're saying so, a lot of so Americans, but we can't say a lot of Americans, right? I mean, we don't know. We, we haven't talked to every single American in this country. We could say some Americans. Okay. I don't, please don't interrupt me. I, don't, I let you speak as well. well but I, I wanted to make sure that you didn't I generalize that all Americans have issues with it. I didn't say all Americans. Thank you. And I'm you not said a lot of Americans. So are you going to let me speak or not? Well, Romina, I just want to point out that you can't say a lot of Americans had issues with that funding. We can say some. Did you want to respond, Romina? Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to respond to the listener now or to the person trying to argue with me over the line. I'm but not arguing you with this. you, Romina. Yeah, I just I'm, wanted to point that out. I said many Americans. I didn't say all Americans. And I think this election pointed some of that out, that there are quite a few Americans that some of the elites in our big cities don't seem to recognize have different views. And the federal government, by promoting a certain social agenda through its funding mechanisms, that is creating concerns 
That is something that we should work out in civil society, and most of that is happening through civil society. And we have a concept in economics. It's about the dead weight loss of rent-seeking. The discussions that we're having right now over this tiny funding stream from the federal government that doesn't even make up 0.01% of funding for the arts is diverting so much time. There are billions of dollars out there in private contributions. That is... That is where the money should be coming from. That is the money that's independent of political interference. And it is, it is absolutely naive to believe that when you have a, a, that federal government agencies aren't subject uh, to political considerations when they get their funding directly from Congress, which is a political institution. And there are plenty of examples of how this works. And, and there are rightful concerns to be had about this. And there's also state and local funding available. So it's not like when federal funding dries up, there's no more government funding. There are other entities where it's more proper to fund those projects on a more state and local level where lawmakers are much more in tune with what those populations want from their taxpayer dollars. Well, thank you, Romina. And Christina, can you respond before we go to break? You know, we're talking about uh, a mere 0.004% of the total federal budget, which is allocated to the NEA. That's less than half of one hundredth of a percent. But yet still, we know the impact that this kind of funding is having across the nation, reaching all of our communities. I mean, it's very interesting because I know Romina, as myself, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant as well. And Romina's home country of Germany, their cultural budget blows America away. They have allocated $1.63 billion in 2013 to arts and culture. $1.63 billion, which is equates to like $20 per German citizen, where we're at like 40 cents. Okay, so I think that says a lot about, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I hope one day we will be in that place. But, you know, we're talking about um, uh, reaching communities in an equitable, responsible, inclusive way. And I can tell you as somebody who has come from a practicing artist background and arts administrative background and now working with government to help fund arts that we prioritize our people first, and we are responsive to them. There is nothing about our funding model that is politically driven in any way. May I respond to the Germany comment, please, yep. since I'm from Germany? Yeah, absolutely. Just a couple of minutes, yes. Romina. And you can see in Europe, and Germany is one example, that the, um, the government is crowding out private funding for the arts and also for other charitable endeavors, because the, the people in these countries have come to expect their government to pay for their cultural experiences. And so the charitable contributions are much, much smaller. So if we want to live in an environment like in Germany, where you have more government funding, that comes with much fewer overall uh, funds for the arts, because you get much, much less private funding. So that's actually bad for the arts. If you want more funding to go toward the arts, then you should not want the government to make up a larger portion of that because it actually sucks money out of the private um, uh, funding contributions. And Germany overall has much smaller funding for arts and culture because you don't have the private support that we see in the United States. All right. Thank you, Romina Bacha. And just real quickly, Christina, because we've got to get going. Um, <laughs> I just uh, I just want to say, uh, and thank you for that, Romina. Listen, the arts in America, the impact on uh, the arts uh, in America is 4.32% uh, of the GDP, which is higher than shipping, warehousing, construction, transportation, and agriculture. 
Christina Newman-Scott, Executive Director of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and State Historic Preservation Officer. A lot of passion in this conversation. We like to hear from both sides. Thank you also, Romina Bacha, Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from an artist, a Grammy Award-winning artist, Roots in Connecticut. Uh, this is Michael Doherty. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the arts funding. Let's talk to an artist, Michael Doherty, a Grammy award-winning composer, graduate of the Yale School of Music in New Haven. Just won three Grammys. He joins us today from the studios of WUOM in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to be here. First off, congratulations on your three Grammys. So Best Classical Compendium, Best Contemporary Classical Composition, and Best Classical Instrumental Solo. I'm shocked, humbled, but I'll take it. <laughs> now, I understand these are not the first Grammys you've won, so you're obviously very well decorated. But we wanted to learn a little bit more about your background, Michael. Um, you're an Iowa native, born in Cedar Rapids. Tell us about your family and how you um, discovered music. Sure. I was the oldest of five boys uh, who grew up in Iowa. We had a rock band called The Soul Company. Uh, we all played different instruments. Uh, our houses were close together in Iowa where we lived, so the neighbors kept calling the police for disturbing the peace. Uh, and, uh, you know, g- growing up in Iowa, I, I, I played not only rock band, I, I played all sorts of gigs. I played for silent movies, uh, played basketball, you know, whatever. Ha- had a normal life. And then uh, uh, went on to North Texas State, studied there, lived in New York for several years, was a usher at Carnegie Hall, ended up in overseas, finally at Yale, where I studied there for three years and, and was at a fantastic class. Some of my classmates there were uh, 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 Julia Wolf, David Lang, both Pulitzer Prize winners, Aaron Curtis, another one, just an amazing class. Uh, uh, and, the t- and the professor there was uh, uh, Jacob Druckmann, an eminent composer. So it was a great time living there in the Connecticut when I was, that was from 1980 to 83 that I was there. So when we talk about composing, so you started right before um, you were in college, and then um, tell us about the process. Well, the process, you know, it takes a long time to find a voice. Uh, I, I didn't really probably find what I wanted to do, which is uh, delving in American culture and writing music that uh, that reflects that, until uh, I was in, in my early 30s. Uh, but the process is one where I do research, kind of like an actor. If I'm writing a piece about Ernest Hemingway, for example, I'll, I'll retrace the steps of Hemingway. If I'm going to write a piece about Route 66, I'll take a drive along the highway. So I tend to do research for the places and the icons that I'm going to write to uh, compose a work about. But I understand uh, while you were studying, um, you um, at one point were looking at composing in the high modernist style. Tell us about that style and then how you were able to switch to you know, pop culture and what influenced you then. Well, when I was a young composer, the, the preeminent style for writing so-called serious music or concert music was atonal music, where there's really no traditional harmonies, there were no melodies. Uh, let's say it did, it, it did, the music did not sound like Leonard Bernstein, is, is a good <laughs> way to say it. Uh, it was more a v- very abstract kind of music. Um, and I enjoyed that music, but it just didn't speak to me personally. And uh, uh, I grew up in, you know, with music in the 50s and 60s. So I grew up with melodies. I grew up with you know, Frank Sinatra and Motown and Broadway and also great orchestrations, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the, the amazing uh, um, surroundings of those music with the orchestras and, and the large jazz bands and that kind of very pizzazz kind of orchestrations which they could do in, in, in film and so forth. So uh, that was the sound world I was in, I grew, grew up with. And the, the, the modern world, although I enjoyed it, didn't really connect with me. And it wasn't until I studied with Giorgio Ligeti in Germany, in, after I left Yale, who was one of the preeminent modern music composers of the 20th century, who actually encouraged me to go back to my jazz and rock roots. He said, you know, we don't need another American composer imitating composers in Europe. You should go back to the States and find your own style and go back to the music that you grew up with. And so that's what I've done. So you were lucky to get that advice. It's obviously taken, to, taken you to where you are today. Um, had you not gotten that blessing, so to speak, what do you think you'd be doing now? I don't know. I think I'd be a lost soul. You know, it, it, it's funny when you're young, you know, you don't have the confidence uh, often to to make that uh, direction. I, I remember my late father, I once asked him, how do, how, how do I know when I've met the person I'm going to marry? And he said, when you don't have to ask me that question. And uh, it's the same way with writing music. How do you know when you found your style, when you it's something you just know? Mm. I'm speaking with Michael Doherty, a, a Grammy Award-winning composer, graduate of the Yale School of Music in New Haven. He's joining us today from the studios of WUOM in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let's talk more about uh, your music, Michael. Uh, award-winning composition, Tales of Hemingway. You know, why Ernest Hemingway? Well, I've always been a fan of Hemingway, and uh, I live in Michigan where Hemingway spent a lot of time. Also, when I decided to write a cello concerto, I discovered that Hemingway played the cello as a youth. So I thought, well, that would make a nice connection it also gave me an excuse to do several things. One was to go up north in Michigan to follow the, 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 the footsteps of Hemingway. Also to go down to Key West and hang out down there during the winter at the Hemingway house. Mm-hmm. I never made it to Cuba, uh, but I have been in Spain. And uh, un- unlike Three Dog Night, who never made it. But, uh, but I, 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 I was able also to, uh, to uh, uh, reconnect with the literature of, Hem- of Hemingway, which is a very American way way of writing. Also, you know, he was a bigger-than-life figure, uh, you know, somebody who was always, wherever the action was, if it was the First World War, the Second World War, he was there as a reporter. He knew all the film stars of his day. Uh, you know, he was just a, a, a person who was this magnetic kind of personality, for better or for worse. Uh, one difference between Hemingway and me is that I don't drink. <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, he would work every day from, uh, from 6 a.m. to noon, go out hunting and fishing, whatever, and then, you know, in the evening, uh, get incredibly drunk. Uh, but then the next day, he, he would work, work again. Uh, but Hemingway was a fascinating figure, uh, kind of an op- operatic figure, which allowed for a lot of drama and also for this concerto. Let's listen to that first movement titled Big Two-Hearted River. It's really lovely. Tell us about the process. We hear so much about uh, technology these days and how it, you know, it allows people who may not have uh, the musical background or studied uh, to be able to compose. How do you compose something like this? 
Well, I, I do still work at the piano. Uh, I, I, like most composers today and the students I work with here at the, at the, at the University of Michigan, use Sibelius. It's a software. You, so I, I have a, a large monitor at home and I can input the music and I have a very good sound uh, playback system so I can actually hear the instruments and, and, they're, and they're quite good. But there's nothing like working with a real player. So in this case, I, I work with cellists. Whenever I'm writing a concerto especially, I, I will hire different people to come over and play the piece I'm, I'm composing because there's nothing like hearing, uh, you know, hearing the real in instrument. Also, music for me is collaboration. So you know, you're in your studio alone. But then I'll bring players over to play through what I've written, and that's a collaborative process where, where, where I mm -hmm. hear the music live and, and, and so forth. So, you know, it's kind of like you can only do so much in cyberspace or through technology, but you need that human mm -hmm. input. You need to hear the sounds of the, the instrument, in my opinion, mm -hmm. to get to that next level in, in the writing process. Tell us more about the collaboration. Now, you were commissioned by the Nashville Symphony Orchestra to write that piece. Uh, what is that like working with an orchestra? Well, you know, the, the thing about working w with an orchestra is that the, the time period that you have to actually hear your piece and then when it's performed, in this case recorded, is very short. So the first rehearsal is Wednesday for two hours. There's a dress rehearsal Thursday. Friday, they're, uh, they're uh, performing and recording the concert live. So they, re they did two uh, sessions. There's a Friday night concert, Saturday night, and then a short patch session. So that means when I come in that Wednesday, I better be pretty sure what I want. So the revision process, if you're going to do that, really takes before that. So what I would tend to do, because I know the rehearsal time is so limited, is that I'll hire a, a miniature orchestra, run through the piece and record it, and make my revisions ahead of time. Um, but working with an orchestra is great because, you know, you have all the sounds there. You have the woodwinds, you have the brass, you have the strings, you have the percussion. So you have the full gamut of all the instruments that are there. And it's always an exciting experience. There's nothing, to me, more delightful than hearing a live you know, orchestra or wind ensemble, live instruments playing. It's just a, an amazing sound. And that must be something to be the person that has, is creating that. And you're hearing uh, these musicians playing uh, what at one point was just in your head. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a great honor. It's a great pleasure. As you get older and you've written more pieces, you're more uh, aware of what's going to be happen, hap happening. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I, you know, we're, I just heard your previous uh, 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 show about the uh, different opinions about the arts and so forth. But, you know, when you get down to it, when you go to a concert live, there's nothing like experiencing that, that, that music live. And I think that if people can... Uh, anybody who doubts about the arts, if they could just go sit near an orchestra and hear an orchestra play great music, it's, it's so exciting. It's just going to seduce you to want to support the arts. And not everyone gets that opportunity, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, it's funny. The ticket is actually less expensive in many cases mm -hmm. to go to an orchestra concert than it is to go to a movie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but it, it's kind of a cultural thing. I, I think for many people, uh, including myself, when I was a kid, because I grew up in Iowa, where there really wasn't a major orchestra, my the music I heard was from film. Uh, you know, listening to the great MGM movies and, and uh, you know, the westerns and so forth. That's where you heard the orchestra play through film. And many people today, many young people, it's actually video games. It's very interesting. When I go around the country and do workshops at, 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 with young composers, the biggest influence is video games. Now, I don't do that, but they do use orchestras who do record the music for a video game. So it's interesting for many of them, that's their connection with, uh, or with orchestra music.
We just have a couple of minutes left, Michael. But, you know, you mentioned our last segment. We were talking about politics and funding. You know, how do current events um, influence you as you uh, create uh, your next uh, composition? Well, it's always tempting. You know, I do have some, I have, I'm somebody who loves American Americana, so I have pieces, you know, influenced by Elvis or Jackie Kennedy or places like Mount Rushmore uh, or Harpo Marx or whatever. It's It's a very wide variety. But I also have works about the dark side of America. I have a piece called Sing Sing J. Edgar Hoover, which I wrote for the Kronos. I wrote a Woody Guthrie piece, Songs of Love and Protest, last year. So I do have some uh, works that are on the dark side, too. Uh, sorry, can you ask me that question again? I'm just curious how current events and politics uh, you know, help influence you and your creativity. Well, you know, it's funny that sometimes it will be something overt, like a, 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 a crea- somebody creating something. You might want to do something political. Uh, but uh, it's sometimes it's more interesting obliquely. I think, first of all, you need some distance from things before you write about them. Mm-hmm. It may be 10, 20 years, but you can do it obliquely. Like, for example, if you were going to do a piece about Donald Trump, you wouldn't do that, but you could do a work about mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson, for example, who many of the same issues that we're dealing with now were dealt with at that time with that president. Mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson. So, so there's a way to do things obliquely, which is sometimes more in, interesting. But it's always, you know, politics and music is an interesting, su- interesting subject. And, uh, uh, you know, it often works very well with voice when there's a text. If you think of, of Kurt Vile or others who wrote political mm-hmm. songs, that seems to work very well when there's a text. Well, Michael Doherty, again, thank you so much for joining us from the studios of WUOM and Ann Arbor. Um, as we close out the show, we wanted to hear a little bit more from that fourth movement of Tales of Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. Michael, such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for having me. This is where we live.